0: Uh, they, You know, you typically would think, uh, you might think of the text we had last week with the ascension, but probably not. You normally would think of Acts chapter 2, the uh, day of Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit, or you might think of Acts chapter 9, uh, the conversion of Saul, or you might think of 13 when Paul and Barnabas are sent out, or some of the miraculous and amazing things that have happened on Paul's missionary journeys, including uh, chapter 17, the great speech to the philosophers in Athens. Or you might think of his appearance before King Agrippa, wherefore, O King Agrippa, uh, or maybe even the shipwreck. But people don't think of Acts chapter 1, the second half of Acts chapter 1, but we're going to see why this chapter is so important for us uh, and why uh, of all the chapters, in some ways, it may be the most relevant. Well, let's look at it and see why. Uh, will be, we'll pick it up uh, with uh, verse 12, and let's read through the end of the chapter. Now, you remember that in the first part of the chapter, uh, Jesus has spoken to them. He's told them uh, that they're going to receive the promise of the Father, the Spirit, and this, this whole book is about the life of the Spirit in the, in the church, the power of God in the church, the acts of God or the acts of the apostles. And then uh, he ascends into heaven. What a glorious sight. That was indelibly impressed upon their minds all their lives. And then we come to this, this text. Verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem for the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer "...together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers." In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, "...brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry." Now this man acquired a field with reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Uh, Thanks for those details. Uh, And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All right. Acts is a story of the church under revival. We saw that last week. You wanna know what the church is supposed to look like? Look at the book of Acts. When we're baptized by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit, compelled by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, this is what we look like. Now, the reason that the latter half of chapter one is so eminently relevant for us is because this chapter is about the church When it's not under revival. And folks, that would be us today, and that would be every one of you, unless you are over 105 years of age. You've never seen revival, Uh, a nationwide revival or a regional revival. You've never seen it. Uh, The last one we had was in 1905, 1906. Uh, It kind of got its genesis in Wales. And then it quickly came to the states and spread all across this country, in a magnificent way, including those of us right here in Memphis. If you'll read the accounts of it, I know it's in our own church history because our church goes back before that time. We we were founded in 1844, and uh, our our church history accounts for what was happening in those years. And we our church grew when we were downtown. We saw many conversions. In fact, uh, our church history records some very dramatic conversions. A Memphis Union mission was started by a guy who was in the gutter. And he got reached during this revival that hit Memphis in 1905, 1906. And it was true all across the country. We, we haven't seen that since, since that time. But the latter half of chapter 1 shows us the church at work before revival hits. What are we supposed to be doing in what we call ordinary times now of course there are pockets of renewal Uh, some of you have had experiences of renewal as have I personally we've been among groups that have had renewal now I'm not talking about that I'm talking about a nation sweeping revival where um, magnificent things happen people are coming to Christ in great numbers and the church is being turned on on its head so what does the church do? And I want us to look at this text because really we're given two really clear things to do here while we're, while we're waiting on God to do His thing and hoping that He will. And the first one is prayer. In verses 12 through 14, prayer is the prelude to spiritual revival. There are 31 references to prayer in Acts. Some of them are very notable. We'll mention a couple of them. But 20 out of the 28 chapters in Acts have prayer in it. And Luke, in his gospel, emphasizes prayer. In fact, if you want to look at the prayer life of Jesus, Luke will give you the best picture of it. Because in Luke, you'll have all the occasions that I think all the gospels, maybe with one or two exceptions, where Jesus is at prayer. Luke is obviously making a point of this, that the ministry of Jesus Christ is a ministry of prayer. We don't just pray for the work. No, prayer is the work. And we only betray our own misunderstanding of prayer when we speak of it that way. Prayer is the greatest work that we do. I've said to our officers on many occasions, we meet once a month, and the first 30 minutes of every one of our meetings is on our knees in prayer. And I've said many, many times when we get up from our knees, boys, we just did our best work. (laughs) It was our best work of the whole evening, was being on our knees before the Lord, praying for the church and the world. Well, let's notice several aspects of this prayer that is a prelude to spiritual revival. First of all, it is in obedience to the Lord. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem, verse 12. Why did they return to Jerusalem? Because Jesus told them to. He told them to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. It's just really simple. Go back there and pray. I saw an article in USA Today the other day. It was the one that uh, talked about all the airline charges. Can you believe If you have an overweight bag internationally, do you know how much it costs? $400. I couldn't believe that. Boy, I mean, our airlines lost $65 billion in the last 10 years, so let's not be too hard on them. But, man, they're making up for it real fast. Uh, But in that same article or that same series of articles, there was an article about what some people do uh, when they're taking off in an airplane. Did did you read that one? And uh, one guy says, whenever he gets in his seat and the plane starts to take off, he does this. And he says, it's to keep the engine going. And, and, and he, you know, he's dead serious. And, he, and he, he does this, and he says, hey, and, and I've never had a problem. Uh, so I'm going to keep doing it. you know. One guy says that every time he takes off, he lifts his feet up off the ground to kind of, get this, reduce the weight so the airplane can lift off. And he says, once again, it's worked for me every time. And I mean, I know the guy who usually sits next to me usually tries passing gas, I think, to get the thing going. Uh, I've noticed they do that a lot in airplanes. But uh, people have rabbit's foots and they, they, they knock on wood and they uh, <clears throat> carry around a four-leaf clover and they have their lucky little stone that they rub in their pocket. And I mean, that is all kinds of goofy stuff. Hey, I got an idea for you. Talk to the Lord. Try talking to him. Just talk to him. Just ask him. You've got the creator of the universe who sustains all things including airplanes in the air and he's in heaven and he's your father and he's asked you to talk to him and you're sitting there rubbing your four-leaf clover it's idiocy talk to him and that's what jesus is saying to his disciples you want to know what you do during these 10 days you know you don't just wait around go play golf go fishing like peter you know sea of galilee now get together and talk to the lord you say what do i say I'll never forget what a woman told me. She said she was was very sick, and she was in a hospital bed. Her mother came to her, and she just said to her, Honey, just talk to him. I mean, you don't seem to have too many troubles talking with someone about business. You don't seem to have too much trouble talking about your favorite football team. Just talk to him. And you say, Well, I don't know how to pray like an apostle. Well, that's just fine. We'll get you there. But just start talking to them like an infant, okay? If you're infantile stage, talk like an infant. I don't expect my little grandchildren, who, you know, the, the oldest one's now just over two, and she goes, <laughs> and of course, what do I say to her? <laughs> you know, we just have this great conversation going on. And, I, you know, I'm very eager for when this girl gets words. She's going to be incredible. Uh, but until she gets words, it's fine. We're talking fine, We're, and you know, if you don't have all the forms, you don't have good grammar. You don't know how to start a prayer, or how to conclude it. It doesn't matter. If you're an infant, be one, and the Lord will hear you. Uh, he knows the size of your heart. Uh, now, we won't be asking you to lead us in prayer on a Sunday morning. Uh, that'll take a little bit more experience, and we need some grammar, and we need some structure and form, and we need brevity and clarity and all the rest of these things so if you're going to lead in public prayer now that's a different matter but if you're just going to talk to the lord you can just talk to him and gentlemen sometimes you don't talk to him because number one you're not sure he's there number two you really think you're in control of your life and number three you're too embarrassed too because you don't know how to do it get over it what you're doing is you're lopping off the number one source of influence that you have in this world. I don't care what your job is. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how popular you are, what kind of name and reputation you have. None of that compares to the influence that you have if you'll just talk to the Lord. And that's what he tells them to do, and they did it. They had no idea what it meant to receive the Spirit. They had no idea what they were asking for. And I remember a seminary professor who one time told us in seminary... You know, you guys are praying for revival. I'm a historian of revival. Let me tell you something. You don't even know what you're praying for. If it comes, it'll turn your life inside out, upside down. It will, it will thrust you into situations you can't even imagine. And to have the presence of revival power in your life, none of you have had. You don't know what you're praying for. We don't know what we're praying for. But let's pray anyway. And these men did. And these women did. And boy, did they ever get an answer. So let's pray. And you'll notice in Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, when Jesus says that the fields are wide unto harvest, and He says that we're to go out like He does, with compassion for the lost and the sheep that are helpless and harassed. And He said, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest field. Even in the issue of evangelism and international missions, the main thing is prayer. That's what He tells His disciples to do. So this chapter is very relevant. You want to know what to do in ordinary times? You want to know what to do while you're waiting for the great acts of God? Talk to Him in prayer, in obedience. And there's so many cases in this world where this has happened. Some years ago, my wife and I uh, went to Scotland, and one thing we wanted to be sure to do is get to the Outer Hebrides, and some of you have been there. They're just little islands, uh, lightly populated. But the reason we wanted to go was because Uh, on the Outer Hebrides, where many of the people still speak Gaelic. In the Outer Hebrides, there were some phenomenal revivals uh, in years past, including in the middle of the 20th century. So I wanted to see this place, uh, the the Isle of Lewis. And some of you will know Lewis and Harris. They're right together. Harris Tweed, that's where it comes from. What you see on these isles are just a lot of sheep (laughs) and a lot of heather. And the ocean. And uh, uh, so the wool from the Isle of Harris gives us these famous Harris tweed jackets. Uh, I, I did have to buy one of those. But going, when I landed on the Isle of Lewis, I wanted to just uh, get my car that I'd taken over on a ferry and just keep going west, a few, just a very few kilometers. It's a small island. Because I wanted to get to the little village of Barvis. Because in Barvis in 1949, this little church there, Church of Scotland, uh, had two older women. One of them was blind. They couldn't go to church anymore. But the Lord laid it on their heart over 80 years of age just to start praying for revival, which they did, just these two women. And then pretty soon there were seven young men that began to get together and meet every Saturday night in a barn to pray for revival. And then, gentlemen, uh, revival hit that place in a famous way. And, and make a long story short, thousands and thousands of people were converted. Uh, through those re- revivals. And that whole village was turned upside down. Well, I wanted to see this place. So I'm driving from the east coast of the Isle of Lewis, go up over the little the, the little ridge. Just It's just two or three kilometers. And then I'm starting to come down to the village of Barvis, And I'm saying, where is it? I mean, there are fewer people in the village of Barvis than there are on my block on Walnut Grove Road. It's tiny. And There are just a few houses around, and then over here is a little white. It almost looks like a hut. That's the church. Gentlemen, it doesn't take a lot of riches. It doesn't take a prestigious church. It doesn't take a big church. It doesn't take a a great preacher. This is a little village with almost no resources, and God, he chose to grant the answer to their prayers. And revival broke out there over a number of years, decade after decade. In fact, we went on down south of there to the Isle of Harris. And my wife wanted to go see how they wanted to see someone on the loom. And so we went, and there was an elderly woman there in a little hut next to the ocean on the Isle of Harris. And she was working her loom. Well, when we came in to see the loom, we just noticed there were a couple of brochures by the door about revival. So this is interesting. So sure enough, we find out this woman's husband was an elder in the church uh, that got revived and led in the revivals in the past. And he had just deceased five years ago. We said, well, you know, she said, well, let me tell you about my life now. I'm on this loom. And by the way, you want to know where all the colors come from? You just look look out her window. There's the orange heather and the purple heather and the red heather. It's all in the heather right there by the ocean. And she's just making up the colors for all of her patterns right there. But she's every, on that loom, she's praying for revival. She said, when my husband died, he had the burden for revival and I just prayed, Lord, give that burden over to me now that he's gone home. And that burden's on her heart. She's on that loom just praying for revival. That's her life. You never know her name. You'll never meet her. And oftentimes, uh, I, I realize when we get to heaven, we're not going to know who the real stars were. It's not Calvin and Luther and John Owen and John Bunyan and all the rest. It's little ladies and and handicapped men and folks who were never known by the church, but they've been people who are devoted to prayer because the Lord commanded us, go into Jerusalem and wait in prayer, and that's exactly what they did. You say, I'm not very good at prayer. Hey, I understand. I'm not real good at it either. But there's some things that we can do to be people of prayer. If this is the discipline that really counts, why don't we think about putting in disciplines in our lives? Some of you have an iPhone. Uh, If you need some discipline in prayer, uh, you can get an app uh, called... um, What's it called? I use it. Prayer something. Uh, hmm. Hang on a minute. Uh, <clears throat> and the reason, the reason I use it is because I'm not a real good prayer, so I can't pray for all my prayer requests in one day. I've got to spread it out over seven. It's called Prayer Partner. Uh, I've got to spread it out over seven days. And so what I do is I schedule my prayers, my intercessory prayers, over seven days. And I put them in, in that app. And then... You know, on Monday, I pull it up. Tuesday, I pull up my different prayer list. Wednesday, if I miss Wednesday, fine. Just go to Thursday. Don't try to make it up. <laughs> I'm not that good. So just get your prayers, your intercessory concerns that are most important things to pray about. Get them Get them on a schedule. The other thing I do is I happen to be lightly extroverted, so it helps me to schedule uh, meetings of prayer. And you'll notice these people got together to pray. So I don't depend upon my isolated self I know better than to do that. I'm I'm by nature not a really good contemplative, prayerful person. So I have staff prayer every week. I have pastor's prayer every week. When the elders get together, we pray together. Part of that is for my own salvation. Let's get these elders to help me pray. And I'm sure the elders feel the same way. So every important working group that you have, uh, if they're believers, you get them together for prayer. Get your family together for prayer. All these disciplines, you see, they were doing it together. One hundred and twenty of them, holding each other accountable. So if James wasn't there, hey, where's James? We'll tell him to come tomorrow night. Where's Peter? Where's Where's Thomas? Where's Philip? Uh, where's Mary? Where's Joanna? Get them here. So corporate prayer scheduled in your life because it's the most important thing. I notice we schedule our meals. We schedule our golf games. We schedule important appointments. We schedule the things that make the most difference to us. So it's a matter of what you consider important in ordinary times. And if you're waiting for the Holy Spirit to put a little flame on your head you know, to remind you, you're going to be waiting a while, it looks like. So in ordinary times, in obedience to the Lord, uh, we seek to do these things. And the Lord has blessed mightily through the years. Uh, you know the story of Jeremiah Lemphir. In New York City, 1857, he just puts up a sign on his little business, uh, going to meet for prayer at noon. Well, he put the sign on his door, and at prayer meeting, guess who was there? Jeremiah Lamphere, that's said all by himself. By the end of that prayer meeting, there were six men. The next week, there were 20. The next week, there were 50. And before the year was out, 10,000 people in New York City alone were meeting for prayer at noon. And that led to the second great awakening uh, in this country. That was the biggest revival before 1905, 1906. One guy decides to pray. Now, that doesn't mean that if you decide to pray or I decide to pray that we're going to get our name in the book as the guy who started the third great awakening, but what it means is this. Prayer is the prelude to spiritual renewal and spiritual revival in personal lives and in church lives and in national lives. And we don't know every reason why God chooses to do it this way, uh, but a great historian of revivals, J. Edwin Orr, put it this way. He said, no great spiritual awakening has begun anywhere in the world apart from united prayer, Christians persistently praying for revival. So if you're really concerned about your family, You're concerned that some of your kids are not turned on to Christ. Or you're concerned that some of them are drifting and getting into things that are self-destructive. Or some of them seem to be so self-absorbed in their career. Or some of them are getting the wrong friendships in school. Gentlemen, forget the four-leaf clover and forget the long sermons, short sermons. Forget the long sermons and remember, take it to the Lord in prayer. It's amazing how simple it is and how often... We forget it. In obedience. Secondly, in harmony. Notice that they were in one accord or they were with one accord. Or as Luke, this is one of Luke's favorite words. And it just means with one mind or one passion. And it's because Jesus himself said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Where they agree together in something, then I'm there in their midst. When two brothers get together and agree in prayer, and you're not going to agree in prayer if you're disagreeing in a business deal or if you've defrauded each other, or if you're in conflict. This is the reason church unity is so important. It affects our prayer life. In fact, uh, in 1 uh, Peter chapter 3, isn't it, where Peter says to husbands, if you're not kind to your wife, the Lord will not hear your prayers? Yikes! Maybe that's the reason we're not getting hurt in our prayers. Because we don't realize that without unity, there's not the kind of concerted prayer corporate prayer that the Lord is pleased to answer. Thirdly, it's inconstancy. They were devoting themselves to prayer. And this is the word from which uh, we get in the scriptures, the idea of prevailing prayer. The story of George Mueller, the great uh, missionary hundred, a couple hundred years ago, George had five men in his life he just prayed for, and he prayed for them every day all of his life. Uh one of them got converted after 10 years. Another, one, another couple of them got converted right before his death. And two, one of them at his funeral and the fifth one after he died. Amazing. Just took five men, prayed for them persistently, banging at the door. I don't know why the Lord causes us to bang at the door. Uh, in your small groups, I'd love for you to discuss that. But he often does. He waits until we tear the door down before he answers the prayer. But he wants us to pray in constancy. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray always. Stay in an attitude of prayer. Uh, You know, I remember as a 10-year-old, my dad took me to watch the Cincinnati Reds because I was living in East Tennessee, and this was when the Braves were still in Milwaukee. Uh, That was the closest team to us. Uh, so we, we went to Cincinnati. Was it Crosby Field, the old field? And I remember as was a 10-year-old sitting on the third base uh, sideline, and Leo DeRocher, where the L.A. Dodgers, was, was, the Dodgers were in town. And every, you know, DeRocher was the coach uh, by that time, 1960. He, he was the coach, uh, third base coach. So every time he'd go out before the inning started, and you remember, he'd tap the base three times, and then he'd get back in the coach's box. And, in fact, my daddy told me, he said, now, you watch first inning, Leo Durocher going to go over there and tap that bass three times. <laughs> and I'm still wondering, what was that all about? <laughs> I have no idea. Why don't you just consider prayer? I mean, it's a whole lot easier, you know. <laughs> just talk to the Lord about it. I don't know what DeRocher was doing. But, you know, if you've been in athletics, you know, it's just filled with superstition. You know, if you win a game with these socks, well, keep those same socks on for the next game. Of course, you know, your girlfriend's going, oh, man, what does that smell? Well, I said, got to wear the same socks. I don't know what the deal is. But we have our little ways of trying to get control. That's what it is. I've got a secret, I've got a formula, I've got a superstition, got a rabbit's foot, got something, and I'm gaining control of my life. Forget it. The one who's in control of your life is the Lord. You're not in control. And the way that you then live a reasonable life is to talk to the person who actually is in control and make requests of him. Do it constantly. And then we've already mentioned, fourthly, in community, but you see it here, particularly in these verses of verse 14, that they were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. First of all, they were in unity. They were together. Some people say, why do we need church prayer meetings? You know, that just seems to be so passe. Well, the reason is, if you want the blessing of God on a body, then you get that body together to ask for it. If you want your family to be blessed, get the family together to ask him for it. If you want your church to be blessed, get them together and ask him for it. If you want your accountability group, or your small group to be blessed together, get together and ask him for it. That's the way he loves to answer. Get the group together for which you're seeking the blessing and ask them to ask for it. So if the church wants to know God's revival blessing, get the get the church together. Now Uh, Some of you have the uh, greater influence than others to make that happen, humanly speaking. But, you know, no matter where you are, you've got friends. Just if you're in your churches, just get a little prayer meeting going. Don't complain to the pastor because he's not having a weekly prayer meeting. Don't complain to the officers of the church about it. You just start it just with your friends. No big deal. You don't have to advertise. If you want to put a sign outside the door that says prayer meeting on Thursday night at 8 o'clock, go ahead and do it. That's fine. But just begin to pray that's exactly what they did together and notice the diversity they did it with the women why because they wanted the whole church to be blessed so that a church prayer meeting you know we started here at second just <laughs> just about a couple of years ago we said you know what we have all these prayer groups meeting all the time everywhere but we just don't have a, a church prayer group and now we do we only do it once a month but every second wednesday at second presbyterian church <laughs> so people can remember it uh, right here in this room, we'll have about 100 people who will show up and just pray for the church in the world. And that's my favorite meeting of the entire month, uh, when we're together in diversity. And Luke, of course, mentions the women here. And you notice he does that throughout his gospel, emphasizing their place in the church of Christ. Okay, let's move secondly to verses 15 through 26. We see, first of all, if we're seeking God's blessing on the church, which is the greatest blessing is revival, then we're going to pray. The reason it's the greatest blessing, let me just give you this illustration to, to show what I mean. Uh, some of you know the name Eric Alexander. He's still living. He's a, kind of a senior, eminent uh, uh, preacher in Scotland. Uh, he'd be my favorite, I think. He lives now in retirement in St. Andrews with his ailing wife uh St. Andrew Scholar. When Eric uh, recalls what his parents were saying and what his friends were saying about the revivals in Barvis, Lewis, uh, Eric says here's what they said about it. They just simply said, God appeared in Barvis. That was it. The very nature of revival is you simply experience God. So it usually starts with an appetite, wanting to experience Him, wanting to know Him, which then leads to prayer, which then leads to God answering. Uh, so that's the reason that revival is so important, It's just simply the experience of God in corporate life. That's the reason we long for it, and that's the reason that prayer is always the prelude to it. But there's a second thing that Luke is clear to show that we do in our Christian lives in ordinary times before revival comes. And what is it? Well, leadership. Leadership is the obligation of the whole church. So that, uh, look, you have plenty of people, they're in this room, uh, men with character, men with virtue, uh, men with courage, men with wisdom, whether there's revival or there's not revival. And it's the duty of the entire church to be sure that our leaders uh, have that kind of character that is demanded by the Scriptures. And that is our obligation for every one of us. And I have to say, some churches don't take this seriously enough, and some of you in your businesses don't take it seriously enough, and you have paid for it. And you found that leadership and the character in leadership is vital to the success of your business operation or your ministry. Now, in those days, you'll notice that Peter stood up among the brothers in verse 15. And Peter himself uh, uh, simply was expressing the leadership the Lord seems to have given him. And the reason Peter speaks up to address this issue is because of this. The selection of leaders, and this is true in your business too, but certainly in Christian work, the selection of leadership is the clearest human predictor of where that organization is going. And I'll tell you why. Uh, in church life, uh, that I've been a pastor now for 30 years, and here's what I've noticed. In church life, the spiritual maturity level of the church uh, almost never exceeds the spiritual maturity level of the leaders. So when you're appointing leaders, you're basically determining humanly under God's hand most likely where the church is going to be headed. They're not going to go above that level. They may move toward that level. Now, the reason I say almost never is that in revival, it sometimes happens. And then what happens, these leaders either get taken out of the way or they get revived, one of the two. Or the church will then decline and go back under where its leaders are. One of those options will occur Uh, during revival, but in ordinary times, the way that you train and select leaders humanly seems to be the biggest determination of where the entire organization is going to go, and that's the reason, gentlemen, you got to take this seriously in in every uh, area of spiritual leadership, whether it's in parachurch organizations or it's in the church, and as I say, even in your business, I think there are parallels here. We all ought to be learning from the way the church ought to do its business, how in some analogous way we do our business in the professional world as well. Well, let's see what what, uh, Peter does. First of all, A, in verses uh, 15 through 23, he looks to the Scriptures. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of God concerning Judas. This is a remarkable statement on the inspiration of the scriptures. Look here early on in the church's life. Peter is saying, here's what the scriptures are. They are the Holy Spirit speaking through the mouth of one of God's servants, David. That's what the scriptures are. The spirit speaking through Paul, the spirit speaking through Luke. It's the spirit speaking. And so often We'll hear people say in the church in America, well, you know, the Bible, it's a serious book and you ought to read it, but you know, we also want to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. I'm going, hey, hey, hang on just a second. When you're listening to the Bible, you are listening to the Holy Spirit's voice to the church. That is the Holy Spirit's voice to the church. Now, the Spirit does prompt us, the Spirit does enlighten us, so the Spirit does operate in addition to having inspired the scriptures. But gentlemen, it's the same Spirit who inspired the Scriptures who is prompting us to behave in accordance with His voice in the Scriptures. So if you want an intimate, warm, close, spiritually inspired, almost mystical experience with the Spirit, get into the Scriptures because that's where He speaks authoritatively and infallibly. And you see that that was exactly the faith of Peter. Peter says when David spoke, it was the Spirit speaking through him in the Scriptures. So take the scriptures seriously. If you want to, when you have your devotions, you can take your devotions on your knees. If your knees are not so arthritic, you can't stand it. But just as an act of reverence before the Lord, read your Bible in the mornings on your knees because the Spirit is speaking to you in the Scriptures. But notice that we're going to be addressed by the Scriptures. And let's look at three different ways in which this is true. First of all, let's look to the Scriptures to address our pain. And the Scriptures do this. They will deal with the difficult areas of our lives very directly, very authoritatively, in a piercing way. When you lose your uh, your, your wife to cancer, the Bible has something to say about that. When your child goes off the ranch and terrorizes you because of it, the Scriptures have something to say about that. When you have a financial disaster, the Scriptures have something to say about that. When you have a friend who betrayed you, the Scriptures have something to say about that, like right here. He says, For he was numbered among us, verses 15 through 19, and was allotted his share in this ministry. So Peter is taking the Scriptures to apply them to a present moment. And he's saying, Judas was included among us. We thought he was one of us. We gave him some responsibility He was the church treasurer, and he left us. And gentlemen, this is extremely painful. Personal treason is extraordinarily painful. And if you're of a certain age, you have had it happen to you. I'll just tell you, you just can't live this life, especially if you're in leadership, and not have this happen to you. And Peter is saying, look, this is tragic, it was particularly difficult for Jesus himself that he had this trusted compatriot who turned him in and turned against him, but it was predicted in the Scriptures. And so you can look at the Scriptures and say, oh, well, that explains it. I was told this was going to happen. So this, this doesn't catch God by surprise. It, it doesn't mean that I'm not equipped for this. It doesn't mean this is not supposed to happen to people like me. It doesn't mean that I'm necessarily uh, a worse person than I thought although you you probably are, but the scripture is saying that these things were foretold from the very beginning. So it is written in the book of Psalms. And look at number two, Peter not only addresses squarely, and the scriptures address squarely our pain, but they interpret the moment. Peter says, let's interpret this moment. What did this moment mean? Did it mean that Jesus is not really who he said he was? Does it mean that you know, you really have to just take a split vote on this, you know, because, well, you do have 11 out of 12 uh, that believe, but you know, you really have a hung jury because it's not unanimous. What does this mean? Peter says, this is what it means. The Psalms predicted this from the beginning. David said that, that David's greater son would be abandoned. And, and then Psalm 109 says we're to replace him. That's what we're supposed to do with it. So you see, you look to the Scriptures. And gentlemen, when you're dealing with leadership issues, whether it's the development of your own leadership, Or who should be encouraged in leadership under you? What kind of men you're going to encourage and recruit and train? Look to the Scriptures. That's what Peter does immediately. You see his instinct. And then thirdly, to establish the standards for leadership. Now in this case, Peter is quoting uh, probably what the Lord himself had taught him. He says, so one of the men who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, one of these men must, accompany, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So Peter is simply saying there is a biblical standard here that the one who is an apostle must be a witness of the resurrection, must have been personally called by him. And we know in other places in the Scriptures, including second, the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul says that the things that accompany an apostle are the signs and wonders. So they had the capacity to work signs and wonders. All three of those things, personally called by Jesus, visible witness of the resurrected Jesus, and workers of miracles. Those three things are what made an apostle, and they're given to us in the Scriptures. Now, what do you find in the Scriptures for leadership today? Well, I've listed some of the texts here. For deacons, check out Acts chapter 6. For deacons and elders, check, check out 1 Timothy 3. For elders, check out Titus. Now, all of you don't have elders, but if you're in a church or you're thinking about going to a church, there's leadership somewhere. And what you get in the Bible are the standards for that leadership. Now, here's what often happens when church people are thinking about spiritual leadership. They say, okay, let's look at 1 Timothy 3. Man, not get too drunk with wine, uh, not be greedy, uh, you know, be charitable, da-da-da-da-da, hospitable. Man, nobody can reach that standard. But we'll just have to get the best people we can get. That's what most people in ordinary times do. And it's flat wrong. You are just dooming the future of your church or your small group or your Sunday school class or whatever it is when you lower the biblical standards. Paul didn't give these standards to Timothy so that 7 out of 10 or 4 out of 8 would be met. He gave them to him so that every single qualification would be met. Now, that doesn't mean that anybody's perfect, but it means the trajectory of their life is in that direction. And they may not be perfectly kind and brotherly, but they are genuinely kind and brotherly. You know the difference. And they're repentantly kind and brotherly. When they fail in their kindness, they will repent because they're genuine. It's that kind of person. And you'll notice the Scriptures give us the standards for leadership. And I say to you, if you want to prepare your place of spiritual service and community service in the best way, For the Lord to bless it and revive it, be sure that you're looking for competent leadership and you are putting the standards of the Scriptures on it. I don't think anything could be more important in these days besides prayer for the health of our churches, and so often these standards are abridged. And then notice, secondly, B, in verses 24 and 25, they not only looked to the Scriptures, they looked to the Lord, and they prayed. Verse 24, and they prayed, and they prayed. So, they look to the standards that are in the scriptures. That's the job description, the internal qualifications, and the external qualifications. If you're those of you in HR, you got it all right there in the Bible. Okay, now you got your standards. Now, where is he? Where is she? Pray. John Calvin said, uh, in response to Matthew chapter nine. Uh, Verse 38, when the church needs missionaries, let her get on her knees and pray. Pray. God raises up people like this. If he gave us the job description, he'll give us the men. If we're faithful to stick to the job description and the qualifications, stick to them. And if you in your leadership are convinced you're going to stick to the qualifications and the job description. You're going to seek to be that kind of man. Now you can pray for him to make you that kind of man. So whether you're seeking to be that kind of man or you're looking for these kind of men, pray for it. Ask God for them. Because let me tell you something, when you really get them, you'll know they came from God. I have that sensation all the time with with men that I work with and women that I work with. They're just simply gifts from God. So pray and ask him for them. and He's delighted to answer, and he will, even in ordinary times. Jesus prayed all night before he chose his 12 disciples in Luke chapter 6. That's one of the occasions that Luke emphasizes that the other gospelers did not uh, give for us. But before he called Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and Thomas, and Philip, and all the rest of them, he was up all night praying to the Father for those men. And then he goes and appoints them. So prayer must, and you'll see this obviously in Acts chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas are sent out. They prayed and then laid hands on them. So we must commit it to the Lord. They look to the Lord. Now, thirdly, see, they look not only to the Scriptures and to the Lord, but they look to the heart. This is vital. This is maybe the key to the entire entire idea. And they said to him in prayer, You, Lord, who know the hearts. That is, you, God, are a heart-knowing God. And the thing that's most important about my leadership, your leadership, and the leadership of the men that we want to recruit and develop and encourage and deploy, the most important thing about them is their heart. Sometimes the heart is revealed to us in certain ways and sometimes not. And so we just go to the Lord and say, Lord, you know perfectly the hearts of all men. So you protect your church. You raise up these men. You change their hearts. You make it evident to us who they are. Because the most important thing about your leadership or anybody else's leadership is the heart, whether it's revival time or ordinary time. And during ordinary time, you can have hearts that are passionate for Jesus Christ. And I run up against them all the time, every week. Hearts of men who are passionate for Christ in ordinary times. And that's exactly what we need. And remember... God gives revival when He pleases to churches, to cities, and to nations, and to the world. But what He says to any given brother is this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. So the door is being knocked. Your door is being knocked on right now. Would you like to be revived? Open the door and have him come in. And your life is the only one in Christ that you actually can control. And that is self-control, surrendering your life completely to Christ. You can do that in ordinary times. You don't have to wait for a revival for you to be revived. You can be revived right now. And some of you are. And the most important thing about your leadership is the heart. And let me tell you something. When you're following somebody, when you're excited to seek to imitate somebody, why is it? Because you think you're seeing something in the heart of that man that is attractive, that is God inspired, somebody who has a mission larger than themselves. Let me give you an example of someone, you, you wanna know what is a heart? Well, let's, let's just take one example and look in Philippians chapter 2, turn forward in your, your Bibles to page 2284. 2284, Philippians chapter 2. And here Paul is recounting his love and appreciation, respect, and honor of someone with a great heart. His name is Timothy. And he says in verse 19 of chapter 2, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Now look at this. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Wow. Genuinely concerned for your welfare. Genuinely concerned if you know Christ or you don't know Christ. Genuinely concerned that you hear the gospel and that you're, you're persuaded by the gospel. Genuinely concerned that you have food on the table for your family. Genuinely concerned that your marital problems are being dealt with. Genuinely concerned that your children are cared for. Genuinely concerned that you have friends that are healthy for you in your life. Genuinely concerned for your welfare. So he commends Timothy because of that. For Uh, Verse 21, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. There's a man with a heart. Paul had worked with him and seen that he loved the Lord Jesus, that he collaborated well with the Apostle Paul, and that he had a genuine sympathy and care for the people at his own expense. There's a heart. And whose heart is that? That's the heart of Christ, who left the accoutrements of glory itself to come down to this ragged old dirty world, this broken, dangerous, vicious world, and out of an interest for us, lay down his life for us. And anyone who's got a heart for spiritual leadership has a heart like that. And so what Peter and the 120 are praying for, Lord please give us men like that. And gentlemen, let me tell you something. Every family needs a man like that at the head of it. If I could wave a holy spirit wand over the church, if I if a genie told me I could have any of my wishes, I would just say give me men who love their families you know, for the sake of Jesus Christ, who are heading up every one of these homes. And we can cut our pastoral staff in half. You want to know some of the old timers? Why do we have so many pastors now in these churches when we used to just have, you know, a senior minister, maybe an assistant? You want to know why? Because fathers have abandoned their role in the homes. And all of the family brokenness that has come out of that has overwhelmed the church with pastoral duties. And we're happy to do it because we do in the name of Jesus and we derive pleasure from seeking to serve him and to help others. But what we need are men with hearts who love God more than themselves and who love their children and their wives more than themselves and who then, having served them, will serve the world in the same way. Men with hearts. Lord, give us men with hearts. That's what we need above all else. So You'll see how important that is here. And as a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy 3, in the qualifications that uh, Paul gives, uh, all of those qualifications for elders, every one of them except one has to do with the heart. One of them is that he be apt to teach. And if you have elders in your church, don't elect elders if they're not, not apt to teach. The Bible says so. I didn't make that up. You may have some very good men. You may have men who are spiritually more mature than other men, but if they're not apt to teach, they shouldn't be elders in your church. But aside from that one, a performance-based requirement, it all has to do with the heart. And congregations are supposed to be discerning. Nominations committees are supposed to be discerning to seek to discern what's in the heart of that person. Uh, Ajit Fernando, a wonderful Sri Lankan, a senior statesman in the International church, Evangelical Church, Ajit wrote a commentary on Acts, and I consult him from time to time. And he, in the practical application of this text, he said, You know, when I'm looking for leadership in various ministries in Sri Lanka, he said, I'm always looking for a man who comes from a community where he's held accountable spiritually. And I want to know how that works. I want to know who holds him accountable. I want to know the last time that someone uh, intervened on him and how he reacted to that. I want men who don't trust themselves and their flesh, who have men of hearts who know they need to put themselves under discipline to be men of hearts, good hearts. That's the kind of people I'm looking for. Lastly, in verses 23 and 26 in particular, you see that they found two men, a Joseph called Barsabbas, and he had a couple of names there, three names, and then a man named Matthias. They found two men that to them were equally qualified. And oftentimes you'll see that. You'll have three or four men who are equally qualified. You don't know who to elect. Well, they just take it to the Lord. And their way of taking it to the Lord was an Old Testament way. Let's cast lots. And the lots you know, would just be little stones with symbols on them, and you roll them like dice. And the lot would show which was to be the proper outcome. And in the Old Testament, on a number of occasions, this was the process used. If you look in Proverbs for just a moment, there's a really special, probably my favorite verse on this topic is Proverbs chapter 16. This is page 1163. Look at page 1163, Proverbs 16, verse 33, right at the bottom of the page there. And look what Solomon says about lots when done properly. He says, the lot is cast into the lap. But it's very, it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap. So it looks like it's just luck. But every decision is from the Lord. Now that could be taken in two ways. One is that there is no such thing as chance. To us, rolling dice looks like chance, but God orders and foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. So it could mean that. Or it could mean that God uses that process to affect His will. And in the Old Testament, you'll find that done on a number of occasions. Now, in the New Testament, you don't. This is the last time you'll see it. Here's why. I agree with the scholars who suggest that when Pentecost hits in chapter 2, when the Spirit is given to us in fullness, this is the way the Lord works. Through men and women, deliberating prayerfully together, applying rigorously the standards of the Bible, and asking for His guidance, and we together deliberate and come to those conclusions. And that is equally the work of the Lord. So when the Spirit comes, we're taken from childhood to adulthood spiritually. We're under tutorship, Paul says in Galatians in the Old Testament. Now we reach maturity in the age of the Spirit. And now as spiritual adults we now deliberate and decide. In our youth, we would cast the lots and trust the Lord. The point is this. Whether it's Old Testament, as in here, or New Testament, in the life of the Spirit, the intention is the same. Let's put this into the Lord's hands. And what I've noticed is that neither Matthias nor Barsabbas are family members of Jesus. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Jesus had four brothers there. One of them was James, who wrote the Epistle James. And I notice here, James was not the first one to come up. There was an arm's length decision here based on internal qualifications, external qualifications, and job description, and they chose two good men, and then they said, Lord, please take over at this point. We don't know who it is. Would you please reveal it to us? And in whatever way they used in their day, it was to seek the Lord's decision. And then notice what they did. They lived with it. And that's the reason we say, leave it with them. When you have looked for men with hearts, when you have put yourself forward as a man with a heart, and someone has elected you and you say, I don't know how I got elected. I don't know why I'm in here. Let me tell you something. The Lord did it. Leave it with them. He's got you in that place of service. Or he's put this other person in a place of service and maybe you don't like it too much. But David said about Saul after he cut off a part of his robe, he said, I can't believe I did that. just put my hands on the Lord's anointed. And you know what kind of man Saul was. So be very careful when the Lord does something, leave it with him. You can trust him. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't Judases. There always are Judases. It doesn't mean there's not such a thing as church discipline, including the discipline of officers among themselves. But it means that we leave the final disposition of these matters with him. Now, let me tell you about Matthias and we'll quit. I got 30 seconds. Matthias... Not the Bible, but tradition tells us. Went on to be a missionary in Ethiopia. And Matthias, just like some others, his life was ended with an axe across his neck. He faithfully gave his life for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as did the other apostles, except for John who died in old age, in exile. So Matthias was a faithful man. He had a good heart. And gentlemen, that's what it takes in ordinary times to do the Lord's will. Let's seek to be those men with good hearts. Let's seek to be men who see other men, especially those who are younger than we are, who seem to have the good hearts. And let's pour ourselves into them. And let's be God's agent to raise them up so that the church is prepared while the church is praying for the greatest blessing of all, revival, the very presence of God being experienced in our midst. Father, thank you for the gift of your Spirit. Thank you for the fullness of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit, all the things that we shall enjoy as we study this book together. But make us men with hearts who believe your Word and who seek the blessing of God upon your church and your world and use us this day and this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.